Returning to the program, as we promised last week, is our sports correspondent, Sean Minton. Welcome back, Sean. You're paying for my gas for all these trips, right? <laughs> and the donuts. Good, 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 good. <laughs> um, we, we, we tantalized our listeners last week with the prospect of discussing Mr. Floyd Landis and his woes regarding the Tour de France. Do you know much about this whole testosterone thing? You know, I here's what I know about testosterone is when you're running away from something, it goes way up, and when you're calm, it's. I, I think the levels are relative. You're the come on, you're the well, doctor. Well, it's not exactly the fight or flight <laughs> hormone. That's more adrenaline. You know, the bear shows That's up. That's true. And, That's true. Yeah. Uh, here's what I know about Floyd Landis, and that is uh, the the yellow jersey is going to be taken away from him if it if it hasn't been already, and they're going to declare that he cheated. And had un- because he had unusually high levels of testosterone. From what I understand, um, in a Tour de France rider, testosterone levels can be a little high. Sometimes four to one versus a, a, a human being, a normal folk uh, yeah. person like you and I, which is one to one. What I found out with Floyd Landis is his levels were actually 11 to 1. So basically what it's saying is all of the excuses. I don't know if you've been watching this guy. I've heard at least four so far where, he, where he's Jack come Daniels. on. And there was the Jack Daniels. There, there, there's, there's been a couple of different. I have naturally high testosterone right. levels in my body. He's come up with all kinds of different excuses and every you know which is suspect in itself right i mean the best thing to do and let this be a lesson to all you future tour de france riders who plan on cheating <laughs> you know pick an excuse and i mean stick with it come hell or high water because every time you change your mind you make yourself look more and more foolish well you know doctors i'm trying to make excuses for myself uh, who haven't done his homework but doctors don't know much about how to cheat with hormones. I mean, these guys at Balco, these guys at Barry Bonds level, they are, I mean, the whole weightlifting thing with Schwarzenegger back in the 70s, these guys know how to manipulate these things by very, you know, by trial and error. Mm-hmm. And they've gotten really good at it. And docs just don't know much about it. Yeah, but you know, the, the anti-doping commissions, especially here in America, they're, they're getting better at catching the stuff. I doubt they'll ever completely catch up because every time they figure out one method, another method is is going to come around. But but they are getting a little bit better. The one thing that they said about Landis is, if this was naturally occurring, you would see kind of a slow buildup in testosterone uh-huh. in his body over yes. the course of three or four or five weeks. When you know they test these guys every day before they ride and every day when they get back. So the chances of, of this being a natural occurrence. I get it. So he had a big spike on one of the- A one huge of the... spike. And okay. it just happened to be the day after he had his worst ride. They're going up through the through the Alps again. And this is 70 miles in the mountains. Yeah. This guy makes up eight minutes in one day. So the odds of doing that, you know, just by, you know, I mean, I'm sure that he was driven and wanted to catch up, but but the odds of just being able to just do that naturally are, are, are really, really slim. And and uh, I saw him on ESPN the other day trying to explain his situation. He said he was never the one that talked about the quote-unquote, you know, Jack Daniels in his body, that, that, was, that other people were talking about that. Those words never really came out of his lips. So he says he's going to fight this thing to the end. But basically he's had two positive results, an A and a B, and – you know the results really don't lie, and he can sit there and say he's naturally high all he wants. The fact of the matter is he cheated, and it's um, you know the top two riders before the tour started were both booted out. Landis has been kicked off of his team now. It's um, if it was a bigger sport, it would be a huge deal. The fact is, and, and you know, and I'm a huge sports fan. 
you know what? Let them shoot up whatever they want. I, you know, if it's going to make them ride faster and, and, and cause more wrecks as they're heading down the hills, I'm all for that because in general, you know, you know, 18 days of riding through the mountains is, is not all that appealing to me, and it's not really all that appealing to Americans. Ever since Lance Armstrong left after this year, you know, the numbers on, on Outdoor Network were way down this year, and, and people just don't really care anymore. So why not make it interesting? Let them pump as much crap into their body as yeah, they want. I think of that Saturday Night Live bit they did, the, the steroid Olympics. <laughs> They're like tearing their arms off, lifting weights. I remember weights that. And- yeah, they bend down and then they come up. I, I remember that. That was that was very good. Well, uh, you know, uh, what, do, what do you know about Mr. Lance Armstrong? I was hearing them talk about NPR, one of these stations, about it, and they were saying that, you know, they just over in Europe hate his guts. You know they do. That? Yeah, you know, they're, they, in fact, the French newspapers, last year they caught a whiff that maybe he'd been doping. He has denied it all along, and he actually ended up He was suing. charged at one point, wasn't he? Or was yeah, that but just they, in the, I, I in don't the know if he was charged or, or if he was actually charged or, or they were talking about doing it. Right. But, but uh, he sued that newspaper, and he won. And again, the American, whatever it is, the American Doping Association basically found um, just, 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 you know, gross negligence on behalf of the paper for some of the things that they were reporting and he's a he's a the thing that amazes me about Lance Armstrong is one he divorces his first wife and they have three kids together and then as soon as Cheryl Crow gets cancer he bails on her too nice guy he's not perfect let me tell you the man is not perfect <laughs> I didn't know raised that. a lot of money for cancer yeah but he's got flaws just like the rest of us bad boys bad boys what you gonna do what you gonna do when they come for John Minton, our sports correspondent. Sean, of course, worked many years um, up in the um, in the Pacific Northwest in various broadcasting capacities as reporter and talk show host. We uh, think he's a valuable addition to our program. All right, we mentioned a few weeks back that we have a bicycling correspondent here on Radio Parallax, Mr. Paul Dorn. You may recall that we read uh, an excerpt of a letter that he wrote us, and we thought we ought to have him back. So, Paul Dorn, welcome back to Radio Parallax. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. We we were talking uh, about uh, bicycling, Floyd Landis. We made a mention of this, and we thought that we needed to get your input on what the heck is happening to Mr. Landis, his testosterone levels, and the whole Tour de France championship. Okay, well, I think you might uh, get better commentary out of a sports physician who actually knows what the tests <laughs> indicated, but yeah. I can tell you that I, from my perspective, Floyd Landis's career as a professional bike racer is pretty much over. Um, he is 31. Okay. Uh, he's facing probably a two-year suspension. I think a lot of teams will be a little skeptical about um, having him on their teams. Uh, he was fired by his Phonak team yeah. on August 5th, and uh, that's a Swiss hearing systems company, and they've since announced that they're going to withdraw their sponsorship and their team will be disbanded. His backers are not backing him at this point. He, he claims he's innocent, plans to defend himself, and it's really uh, the Tour de France organizers no longer consider Landis the winner, and that's pending a decision by the International Cycling Union, which should happen sometime this fall. Now, there's kind of an interesting California connection here with Floyd Landis, because he was actually the winner of the inaugural tour of California, which was um, the Amgen tour of California, which is a seven-day stage race basically from the Bay Area down to L.A., held in February. And okay. he won that race. That was uh, He's had a, a pretty good season, including the tour. And now, you know, do we need to be skeptical about that race result as well? 
And what's uh, maybe interesting to your listening listeners there is that the 2007 Amgen tour of California will be coming to Sacramento on February 20th. They'll um, mm. they'll race from Sacramento, excuse me, from San Francisco up to Santa Rosa, and then the next day they go from Santa Rosa to Sacramento, arriving there on February 20th. Wow. But I, I don't anticipate Floyd Landis uh, defending his title in next year's race. <laughs> It's a real shame for bike racing and the Tour de France. Yeah. And, you know, the Tour has worked harder than almost any other sporting event to tackle illegal performance-enhancing substances. Sure. And, um, and as you know, my interest in bicycling is mainly as a transportation mode rather than as an athletic endeavor. Yeah. And so what I appreciate about people like Floyd Landis and Lance Armstrong is basically their their success in the sport has raised the visibility of cycling. It's raised awareness, legitimized the activity, and, you know, in general created a positive media attention until this recent <laughs> fallout with the, uh, I guess the term is adverse analytical finding for testosterone. <laughs> so that's kind of a bummer. And I, I'm glad to have an opportunity to talk to you because I, I heard your interview with Chris Payne, uh, yeah. the filmmaker who made the film Who Killed the Electric Car, and that you know, I'm I'm very involved in the bike crowd here in San Francisco, and a number of our our friends have gone to films recently, and the trailer has been playing. And I don't know if you've seen the trailer, but it's uh, it starts with a black screen. It goes global warming, pollution, unrest in the Middle East, rising gas prices. There is an alternative, and that's when a lot of my friends will start screaming, "Bicycle!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then they go into uh, right. the thing about the electric car, and you know. I'm grateful for Mr. Payne's film. I haven't seen it yet. I've seen the trailer several times yeah. in the theaters I go to, but I haven't seen the film. And I'm grateful for, you know, his his efforts to expose the the venal criminality of the petroleum and automobile industries. But, you know, to me, the electric car is really no salvation. Developing a cleaner and more efficient car is certainly a, a worthwhile objective. Right. They talk about the long tailpipe because you got to generate power somewhere. Sure. Your emissions are coming out at the at where they're generating the power. Well, you know, emissions is, are are only one detrimental aspect to our automobile dependency. You know, the, the fuel consumption is another one. But you know, let, let me give you like three examples of car impacts that are of particular significance to Californians. Okay. And th- that those impacts would be housing, healthcare, water. Okay. Now, you know, housing prices are higher because we are so dependent on our automobiles. You know, land consumed for streets and parking in most metropolitan areas, about 35 to 50 percent of the land area of that metropolitan area will be paved. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, just simple market, you know, supply, demand, economics tells you that if the price, you know, if you're taking 50 percent of the land and using it for cars, the price of the rest of the land is going to go up for things like offices, homes, schools, hospitals, other worthwhile things. Good point. You know, and then, you know, new homes in the last 50 years have always included off-street parking and garage. That drives up the price of construction. Sure. Uh, all the energy that we consume in our vehicles drives up the cost of heating available, energy available for heating and lighting a home. And then, you know, our consumption of oil to drive our cars drives up petroleum prices leading to uh, higher costs for petroleum-derived housing products like PVC pipe, vinyl flooring, vinyl siding, other plastic products. So the cost of housing, which is, you know, in a crisis thing here, there is no affordable housing in California. Yeah. You know, and, and in part, the car, our car dependency is a contributing factor to that. Um, talk about health care. 
and you know we have a major health care crisis in this state, this country, and we could talk about 4,000 people who die every year in California as a result of car collisions, and thousands more are hospitalized, and many crash survivors need extensive rehabilitation and additional treatment, and you know all of this puts a heavy burden on our health care system. To say nothing of people being too fat because they don't ride bicycles. <laughs> the, our, our car culture really uh, encourages a very sedentary lifestyle. Um, driving itself is a very stressful activity. Your eyes are darting constantly back and forth, and, and you're sitting in a, in a f- fixed position for a long period. Traffic, noise, and danger is a stress contributor. These are additional burdens on our health care system. And then, of course, the uh, bad air quality um, that we experience which maybe an electric car might mitigate a little bit, but, you know, that contributes to asthma, allergies, other respiratory ailments. Yeah. So that's housing, health care. And then the other one is water. And one thing to say about water is is the toxic runoff um, from the particulate matter and oil residue left on all the streets and roads in California. Um, I heard one analyst suggest that basically an Exxon Valdez oil spill occurs every year in California just from the, the oil residue washed out wow. um, off of our roads. Wow. And that's just us, California. So, and then there's all those airborne emissions, you know, are eventually washed out of the sky during rainy months, and they flow into our rivers and streams and impact our wildlife and our drinking water. The water consumed to, to wash cars, of course, uh, picks up all kinds of t- toxic waxes, polishes, sealants. Sure. All our cars, lots of cars means that we have lots of gas stations, you know. All those gas stations have underground fuel storage tanks, many of which are leaking. You know, there was a lot of uh, attention recently to the whole MTBE leakage into our water system. And then finally, like the extensive paving that we do for roads and parking facilities, this hard surface you know, affects the runoff patterns in our watersheds. And that often leads to additional erosion and silting in our water. So basically, there's, there's just a lot of impact on our water supply due to our automobile dependency. Well, we don't think about some of those aspects of our we, car We culture. don't. And I mean, the electric car, it tackles some of the emissions issues, uh, some of the energy efficiency issues. But, you know, there's, there's many other detrimental impacts to the automobile. So I think what... what from my perspective, I think we need a larger discourse, which is just, you know, how do we as a society assure effective mobility for everyone, you know? And, and the reality is, is that about a third of everyone, of the entire California population just can't or won't drive. They're either too young, too old, disabled. They have judicial restrictions on their driving privileges. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're new immigrants, or because of some lifestyle choice, or for whatever, they just can't drive. So that's like a third of our state's population that just doesn't drive. And, and, and you know, uh, we need to do something about the mobility for these people. And I think a, a really effective, efficient transportation system would be multimodal. You know, we're all multimodal in some sense. We drive, we bike, we walk, we take transit. You know, we hail cabs. You know, we bump friends, rides off of friends or something. So a, a, a diverse transportation mix that sort of accommodates all these things assures a, a healthier environment, healthier economy. So that's kind of 
my little dig on the, the film. I look forward to seeing it, and I'm yeah. grateful to Mr. Payne for making it, but it's a, only a piece of the challenge we face. I have to agree, and, and we certainly think we ought to do more to promote bicycling um, than we do, and well, I guess we should, I guess we better do our part here on Radio Parallax. And well, bicycling is not the whole solution. I mean, there's a lot of people who aren't sure. able to bike either, but I think, uh, you know, it's part of a, a mix. Sure. Thanks for giving me this opportunity to kind of respond to uh, your interview with Mr. Payne. Well, Paul Dorn, we're, we're glad to have you back, and we'll have to bring you back a little more, uh, more often than we have been lately and talk about bicycling, because it really is a tremendously promising, still promising, mode of transport, underutilized. I, I like to think so, yes. Well, thanks, Doug. All right. Paul Dorn calling us from San Francisco. Paul is a bicycling activist in San Francisco.